0: Well, it's always so good for me to be at uh, at Walnut Valley. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be with you this morning. I, I'm grateful to your to your pastor, uh, Jonathan Sackovich. We we kind of call him John Sack in, in most of the circles that I run in, and, and uh, I think the world of John. I I, I just uh, am am so delighted that uh, uh, that he's allowed me to to be with you guys. I asked him where he was going to be, and he said he was going to this man camp, and I said so. Running around, bare chested, throwing axes—that kind of stuff. Like <laughs> he said, yes, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so I've been calling it the testosterone camp ever since then. <laughs> but uh, I'm really—I'm uh, excited to get to be with you guys. I—I um—I had a conversation with a young friend of mine. He's a, a young uh, young adult um, that I've known since he was a teenager. Uh, we got to go to dinner this week and had a conversation. It, it, for my friend, um. He's he's really sort of wrestling through all the big questions about what life really is, you know, trying to define himself. <laughs> my, my friend is he like like makes these little TikTok videos where he talks about different aspects of how to live a full life, and and uh, my friend has never made a commitment to Christ, but we've been having a lot of spiritual conversations lately, and he told me this this week. He said, you know. I really sort of think that I need to work on my spiritual life because, you know, somehow that seems like an important aspect to add to my life. Well, I'm not sure that spirituality is something you just add to your life, but, but I appreciate the fact that he's, he's more open to that. And in some ways, when I think about my friend, I think about um, just, just that, that he represents this sort of, of yearning that our seems to be experiencing to just try to identify who I am, who who I'm supposed to be. Um, I I was thumbing through Instagram a couple of weeks ago and ran onto this this little video of a man, I think he was a preacher, talking to another person. And he started with, can you tell me what your pronouns are? Because I don't want to offend you during our conversation if I can keep from it. And, and the, this was a biological woman, and she said, well, you know, it kind of depends on the day. <laughs> that some days I feel like that my pronouns are them and they, and sometimes him and her, and sometimes you know, him and, and he, and sometimes he and she and her. She said, today, you can just call me she or her. <laughs> and the man looked at the girl and said, gosh, that seems so confusing. And she said, well, to work it out, you know. And, and I think that we experience that uh, in our culture that there's so many people that are trying to sort of work out who they are. The passage that I want to go to today may not seem like that it walks us into that question at first. But as I've been studying the passage, it seems like to me that it says some pretty important things to us about who we are and how we can understand and know ourselves. The, the passage is, is probably the most preached passage in the book of Isaiah. In fact, I apologized to Melissa earlier <laughs> for preaching this passage because I said, they're going to know the passage so well already. And she says it's a great passage. Just keep going. So, so that's what we're going to do. I'm in Isaiah chapter 6. Now, Isaiah chapter 6, at least in my read, has about three movements in the story. There are about three different things. And I'd like to deal with those movements of the story um, separately. So we're going to start out looking at just the first four verses of Isaiah 6. So Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. And Isaiah writes, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord at the voice of him who called in the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah is seeing this amazing vision of God that, that, that he tries to paint for us from words. And, and, and I think sometimes that Isaiah's words almost fail him to try to give us the kind of picture of what he sees of God. Now, what's happened is... King Uzziah had been really a pretty good king for, for, uh, for Judah. He was in the southern kingdom. Those of you guys who know the history, that there's a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom of Israel at this point. Israel is in the north. Judah is in the south. And Isaiah is really prophesying to both of those. Well, during the time of Uzziah, he was also called Azariah. He was, uh, he, he was a pretty good king. He ruled for uh, 53 years, so, so a fairly long reign during his reign the northern kingdom in Israel has, has like seven different kings and they were all bad. So, I mean, Judah is doing a whole lot better than Israel was doing at that time. And, you know, the, he, he, all of a sudden we get to the end of his life. Now, Uzziah made some stupid mistakes at the end of his life and that ended up coloring everything. You know, he, he uh, arrogantly goes into the temple and offers incense. When the king wasn't supposed to do that, that was the role of the priest. But he arrogantly does that, and God gives him leprosy, which he continues to have for the rest of his life. And essentially, as a leper, what that meant was that he would never be able to enter the temple again, even to the court of men. And so this was a pretty huge judgment on Uzziah. But in balance, Uzziah had defeated the enemies that were surrounding Judah, He had provided godly leadership to the people. On balance, he was a really good king and had offered something that was a whole lot better than what the northern kingdom had experienced. And then he dies. And you guys know that when you have a leader of that magnitude and you look around at the terrible things that are happening in other places, the questions are, what is going to happen now? Is anybody going to help us in a way that's going to make sense now? And so in that year that King Uzziah died, for those of you guys who are history buffs, we think this is probably around 736 B.C. But in the year that he dies, God reveals himself in this powerful way to Isaiah, as if to say, The earthly king may be dead, but your heavenly king reigns. He sits on his throne. He reigns in power. And so Isaiah has this incredible vision where he sees God sitting on his throne. The throne is is, is apparently a, a vision of heaven. You know, this kind of thing that we see in the book of Revelation, right? That he sees God lifted up in heaven. Um, and his, his, the, the throne is symbolizing his, his place of power and his place of, of authority, and it says he's high and lifted up, that he's above all things, that he is raised up to be viewed, to be seen, that God is present, and then and, and beyond that. It says that he has this train. You know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with what a train is. You know, I had to ask somebody to make sure. But I'm, I'm you know, when you, a bride gets married, you know, and she has this. You know, I don't guess all brides do this, but a lot of them have this this flowing piece of cloth that goes down behind their wedding dress, so that they're kind of dragging the the whole, you know, uh, old life with them or something like that up to the, up to the stage. But they're dragging this train with them all the way up to the to the front to the altar. Well, that's the kind of thing we're talking about. There's this this royal train that's flowing down, and Isaiah says it fills the temple. Now that's funny because if what we, <laughs> sweet, if <laughs> if what we've got is we've got God seated on His throne in heaven, how is it that His train is filling the temple? Well, it looks like that. What's happening is the train of God. Symbolizing, I think, the rain and the authority of God is flowing not just through heaven, but all the way down into the temple to fill the central place of worship for the people of Judah. Huge issue, huge picture, you know, of, of, of the, the power and glory and majesty of God. And then Isaiah tells us that there are these, uh, the, the, these beings, these four beings that he calls seraphim. The word is literally seraphim in, in Hebrew, and I'm not sure why we don't translate that word. You know, I think angelologists like to say, okay, well, let's come up with all these different, you know, you know, but I think it's a word, and then all these different people that had these classes of angels, and the seraphim are one and the cherubim are another. Yeah, 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 maybe, maybe. But I don't know why we don't translate the word, because the word really literally means fiery ones, you know. It's not used very often in the, in the Bible. I, I'll tell you one time that it is used is, you know, when in the story of the Old Testament in, in, where, where the, uh, the Jews have been wandering around and they sin, and so God sends the snakes, the serpents, to bite them, they're called fiery serpents. They're the, they're the seraphim or the, the fiery serpents. And then when Moses lifts up the snake on, a, on the stick, you know, it's, it's calling that a fiery one, a, a fiery serpent, so that he's lifting up this seraphim, this flaming serpent on, the, on, on that. Now, I don't, I don't The Bible doesn't say that these were serpents by any means, but it does say that they're these flaming ones, these fiery ones, which I think adds this sense of power and majesty to the picture that we're seeing here. That Isaiah is said there's these, these flaming, these fiery ones that are surrounding him, and they have six wings, which is kind of crazy to start with. And they only use two of them to, to fly but it says that the other other wings, that two of them are used to cover their faces. I think they're covering their face because even as exalted heavenly beings, they don't look upon the glory of God. This is kind of strange because Isaiah seems to be able to see God in his glory and the seraphim, the flaming ones, Covering their faces so as not to look on the vast, amazing glory of God. The other two, it says that they covered their feet. Some, some translators think that what that meant was they covered everything to their feet. In other words, they covered their body as, as, as sort of a, a show of modesty that I have to be You know, they can't just come in any way before the living God, that I come with modesty before God, that I come prepared to walk into the presence of God, that I cover my feet. I don't show my feet because this is something that's this is the, the presence of God is something that's so amazing for me to be into and that they're calling back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy. You guys know, the word holy means, means literally to be completely set apart. Uh, it, when we talk about holiness with God, we mean that God is completely untainted, un, un, undamaged by sin, un, unfiltered, that he is absolutely pure. That that's who he is. And in the Hebrew language, a lot of other languages do this too, to use a word more than once adds emphasis. <laughs> when I go to the Philippines... My favorite dessert is this thing that they have called halo-halo. Halo Halo really just means mix, you know? So so when they're talking about halo-halo, they put so many different things in it. You know, it's got little candy things and fruit things and, you know, a little jackfruit, a little bit of ube, a little bit of, so good. And then they mix-mix because you mix it and keep on mixing it, right? You know, that that's what you're supposed to do. That They use this double language, these these words twice in order to add emphasis to it. You know, mix-mix, not just mix, but mix-mix, you know? And then... Hebrew does that as well that they talk oops, sorry that they <laughs> that they talk about these things as as, as something that, that that needs emphasis when they repeat the word and when they repeat it three times it's as if they're saying that God exemplifies what holiness is that if you want to know what holiness looks like that this is who God is holy holy And then they say, the whole earth is filled with his glory. I kind of think we look back to that image of his train flowing down into the temple. But what the uh, what the seraphim, the flaming ones, seem to be saying is, yeah, but his influence is not just in the temple that his influence spreads out and covers the world, that his glory, his renown, his holiness spreads out to cover the entire world. And as the seraphim call these words out, it says the foundation shakes. I think it means the foundation of the temple. And it says that smoke filled the temple. I think that the smoke is indicating the presence of God there in a powerful way. There, there's some pictures of this. In, in, in uh 1 uh, Kings 8, when um, Samuel, Solomon, Solomon dedicates the temple, that the Bible says that the presence of God came in a cloud and rested. And that it filled up the temple to the point that the workers couldn't continue to do the things that they were doing to carry on the work of the temple. And and, and that really is just hearkening back to the time in the Exodus where the people were leaving Egypt and they were following a pillar of fire during the day, a pillar of fire at night, and during the day they would follow a pillar of cloud. That, That that pillar of cloud was indicative of the very presence of God. And I Think that this smoke is like that, that it's an indication of the presence of God here in the temple. Well, Isaiah is completely taken back by this vision. He looks at this, and it captures him in a way that's crazy. And and, and he goes on, that takes us to our second movement on it, and and that specifically talks about what happens with Isaiah. So starting in verse 5, we'll go uh, down through Verse 7, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. When Isaiah says, I saw this and I was lost. The, the word there is really an interesting word. My, my, my friend, one of my colleagues at the seminary, says that he thinks we would do better to translate it, I was silenced or I was made dumb. Um, and certainly, the word has that implication. That, that The word actually was a word that originally sort of seemed to mean, back in its etymology, seemed to mean a person who was dumb or a person who was unable to speak. Um, but it came to mean something more than that. It, it, it was kind of an idea that when someone is knocked out or killed, that their voice is silenced. We kind of talk that way, you know, sometimes when we talk about a people that have been silenced because of the, 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 the power that's fallen on them, you know, so, so a, a bomb falls on a city and that neighborhood is silenced, you know, what we really mean is, is the people have been killed or have been so maimed that they're unable to speak, and I think that's the Sure, that we see here, not just that he's not able to speak, not just that he feels dis- confused or lost, but that he is so overwhelmed by this image that he's like dead, that he's like he's been completely silenced. And then he says, "For I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. It's, it's an interesting image, isn't it, right? Because... I mean, Isaiah is really talking about his sinfulness. He's talking about the fact that he sees himself as being sinful, but he uses this image of his lips, this image of maybe his speech to indicate that he is completely lost. I think that what he's giving us, what he's showing us, is that all of the people of Israel claimed with their mouths to be people who followed God, claimed to know Yahweh, claimed to be people who served Yahweh, but he said, I never saw him this way before. How could my words claim this kind of power, this kind of authority? How could my words be the kind of words that would speak, that would, would call him up? And, and Isaiah, while he was probably one of the most godly people in Judah at the time, sees himself as useless and broken and worthless and says, it's not just me, our People, the people of God, the chosen people of God, who claim His name, do so with unclean lips. And then one of the fiery ones takes a coal with a pair of tongs. That seems kind of funny to me that the fiery ones have to have tongs to take a coal. You know, I'm <laughs> like, you know, it seems like you just pick it up and it's you know, kind of like, you know, the, the, anyway. <laughs> but, <clears throat> But he he takes a pair of tongs and he brings a a coal. I don't know whether the image is supposed to be that he takes this from the altar in heaven of God. I don't know. Or whether this is a coal that, that he takes from the temple, from the altar in the temple. But in either case, that he takes this coal and he brings the coal and he touches Isaiah's mouth with it so that the very coals that were used to burn up the offerings unto God were used to burn away the sin that Isaiah experienced. Isaiah says, and my sin was taken away. Occasionally, the Old Testament uses this kind of language. Most of the time, when the Old Testament talks about how God deals with our sin, it talks about our sins as being covered primarily covered by blood, which is one of the reasons why the crucifixion of Christ is such a rich image. It's because over and over and over again, the Old Testament said that our sin has to be covered by blood. And so the blood of Christ completely does that. That's that's, that's really sort of an important issue. But here, that's not the way Isaiah talks about it. He doesn't talk about his sin as being covered. He talks about it as completely being removed and taken away, as being completely redeemed. And I think it's this picture of how completely Jesus forgives our sins when we're in him. That it talks about that as being completely taken away. I think that when Isaiah leaves this situation, when he walks out of the room where he has seen the living God, that he is not the same. At least he doesn't see himself as the same. That he realizes how broken and flawed and useless he is from his heart. But also how God has reinstated him and made him sanctified for the purposes that God has. for him. I think that's powerful. And it leads us right to the third movement of this story. So let's get into that. We're just going to kind of read all the way to the end of the chapter, starting in verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without any. Inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. <laughs> so what happens is immediately, After this amazing cleansing of Isaiah, immediately God says, now who is going to go forth for me? Who's going to be my mouthpiece? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. It's really kind of amazing, right, That, that he is willing to. It's funny to me. Because if you compare this story with some of the other stories in the Bible, like like, like Moses, like Moses meets God in a burning bush, right? And God says, Okay, I want you to go and serve me and talk to Pharaoh. And he goes, I can't do that. Please don't send somebody else, God. Don't send me. And God says, no, go, you know, or, or, or Jonah, you know, he says, okay, Jonah, I want you to go to the people of Nineveh and proclaim my word to them. And Jonah says, no. And he runs the other direction and it takes being swallowed by a fish and vomited up on the land, you know, to be able to actually obey God and do what he wants to do. So it's actually fairly ama- amazing that we have Isaiah that, that sit here and says, when he says, who do I send? That Isaiah says, okay, me, I'll do it. Just let me know where to go and what to say. And I'm there. That's an amazing thing. And in some ways, I think it makes Isaiah one of the most profound figures of the Old Testament. And those words, man, those have been the subject of missionary sermons for as long as I could remember and probably for years and years and years since the modern missionary movement started, at least, of people saying, here I am, send me. and That's so good. To me, the thing that's hard about it, and and the reason why most of us stop our sermons right there and don't go on, is because the rest of the chapter gets really hard. That after Isaiah says, okay, send me, then God begins to give him the message. Read it again. He says, keep on hearing, tell the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes lest they see with their ears and hear, see with their eyes and hear with their ears. You guys, hear what he's saying. Is he saying, look, you're going to go and speak my word and tell the people, okay, here's the message, but don't listen. You know, is, is that what he's saying? Well, Isaiah is taken back by that because the very first thing that he says as soon as he opens his mouth is, how long, oh Lord? And he's like, okay, I, I'm supposed to go and preach this horrible, difficult message. How long do we keep doing this? How long do your people continue to be this way? It's, it's possible to understand this passage to say that what God wanted was he wanted the ears of his people to be stopped up and the eyes to be shut and, and the hearts to be closed. I don't think, That's the intention of the passage. I think what God is saying is, Isaiah, the more you preach, the harder their hearts are going to get. The more you preach, the more you tell them what I have to say, the farther they're going to walk away from me. That they are not going to listen, that they are not going to hear, that they are not going to respond to the message, even though, if they did, I would forgive them. that's what he means. And when Isaiah says, "How long?" Until cities lie waste without inhabitants, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are in the midst of the land. They're not going to listen and eventually it's going to mean their downfall as a people. 722, about 15 years later, the Assyrians came into the northern kingdom, destroyed it, carried people off in captivity, wiped out the cities that were there, and God did exactly what he said he was going to do. That the northern kingdom was completely destroyed. But of course, they were the people with all the bad kings, right? They were the people that had all these people that were leading them in the wrong ways. They were much more given to idolatry and to, and to pagan worship than the people in the South. They were much more likely to take advantage of each other, take advantage of their neighbors than the people in the South. So surely the people in the South won't do that. In fact... It may be that when the Bible talks here, when Isaiah talks about the 10th that would be left, it may be that he was talking about the, the, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The 10th would be that, that tribe. Math doesn't work out exactly right, but sometimes you know, that, that, that's the picture that we get. But it may be that, that God is talking about the, the southern kingdom as being the 10th. And surely Judah would turn. Surely Judah would listen to the message of Isaiah. And in fact, for many years they did a better job than Israel did at hearing the message of God. But what the Lord says to Isaiah here is that though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felt. It took about 150 years from this point, but in about 586 Babylon swept in and demolished the kingdom of Judah, laid waste to their cities, and took the leaders and anyone who was an effective craftsman, anyone that they thought could help them, they drug them back to Babylon and emptied the land of Judah. Regardless of how much God wanted to reclaim his people, to draw them back to himself, to cause him to come to them for healing, to him for healing. Regardless of how much he showed them love, he called to them and warned them of what was coming. The people stopped their ears, closed their eyes, and hardened their hearts until they experienced the desolation a really interesting phrase at the end of the chapter that says the holy seed is its stump. Scholars have kind of wrestled with that a lot. You know, some people think that that's a picture of Jesus, that, that, that at the end, that the line of Judah at the end would lead to the coming of the holy seed of, of Jesus. And that that's definitely possible. I, I suspect that it probably is talking more generally than that here, that I think what God is saying is that there are going to continue to be people who follow me, even though the majority of them are going to suffer the consequences of their own sin. So what does that mean for us? At the seminary, I teach a lot of youth ministry classes. Um, I, that, that's uh, really kind of what my background is. I, I grew, you know, spent most of my life in, in full-time ministry doing Youth ministry, and uh, now I I teach a lot of youth ministry classes. There there are uh, three questions that we say that teenagers really need to be able to answer during their time of adolescence, that they need to be wrestling with these three questions. Questions are simple questions, but they're who am I? I've got to figure out who I am in order to have a productive life. Uh, Where do I belong? Where's my place, my people? And what is my purpose? What am I here for? What, what, what is my mission? Well, the honest truth is, even though these are questions that the literature all says, they are questions that, that, that teenagers struggle with, my sense is that all of us wrestle with those questions in different ways throughout our lives. That, 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 that Eric Erickson, who who talked about the, the problem of adolescence being the need to establish your identity, he said, well, yeah, yeah, this is, this is a major conflict for adolescents, but all of us throughout our lives are going to try to figure out who we are. You, you know, and, and every major change in my life sort of causes me to re-examine myself and take another look at myself. I'm at this place in my life where I'm starting to think about retirement and all those kinds of things, and those things are causing me to really take another look at so what does it mean to be called by God when I walk away from the ministry that God's given me? You know, when God calls me on to the next level of life, what does that mean about me? And I think those kind of questions come up when, when you're dealing with a, a big illness or when you, when you get married or when you have kids or when you you experience the death of a, of, of someone close to you, that all of those, those things tend, <coughs> tend to cause us <clears throat> to once again come back and start to re-examine who we are. Now, Guys, what I think is happening in this text related to that is that as Isaiah is looking at himself and trying to determine who he is, that he doesn't get any farther than I think maybe I'm supposed to be a good person living in Israel. And when he sees God face to face, that it changes his perspective on who he is. Here's the point that I think is important to get at. We don't discover who we are by looking deeply into ourselves, into our own souls. The honest truth is that our own hearts are desperately wicked, and they will almost always, our hearts will almost always lead us astray. That we understand who we are, that we see our identity, not when we look into ourselves, and certainly not when we look into this world, but when we see clear picture of God. That when I can see God, see who he is, see who he really is, see his glory and his power, that when I, I see him clearly, that it changes the way that I see myself, that I'm no longer the preacher or the professor or those kind of things, that I am the man who is deeply looking to the Savior who redeems me. We only find our answer to the big questions about who we are by looking to God. But but, but the truth is, I think that when we start talking about this issue of belonging, where do I belong? Who are my people? Who do I belong to? I think the answer is a same. See, see, for Isaiah, his people were Judah and Israel. It were the Jews, the, the, the descendants of Jacob. You know, those were his people. And yet God said, all of those people will turn away from me. All of those people will continue to walk away from me until their land lies completely desolate. They will not follow me. And I think the implication is, Isaiah, your people are the people who... You belong with those who follow, believe in, pursue me. Uh, from time to time, I, I get to make trips to the Philippines to teach there. Hollow, hollow, you know. There is so much that's so different about believers in the Philippines. They're just different people. You know, they look different. They talk different. They have different attitudes about things. They see the world in different ways. People who follow Jesus in the Philippines have more in common with me. They are more my people than the lost Americans that I've grown up with. in Armenia, you know, the Armenians is such a different people, you know. You know that right away when you greet an Armenian and they come up and kiss you instead of shaking your hand. You know, Armenians are just really different people, and yet the Armenians who follow Christ are more my people than the lost people that we belong to if we're in Christ, if we see God, that we see that we belong to not those people who are turning away from Him, but those people who embrace Him and follow Him. And especially when we get to this last question of what is my purpose? It seems like to me that this also is answered when Isaiah sees God. That His purpose can no longer be just carrying on His work but that whatever else Isaiah does, that his purpose in life is to make God clear, to carry the message to the people of God. And guys, you have to understand, I mean, for Isaiah, this was a desperate kind of situation because while Isaiah wanted so badly, and God wanted so badly, I believe, for the people to turn and to receive healing that they never would, and Isaiah knew they never would, but God gives the people grace, even if he knows that they will not turn, that they will not respond. He gives them the grace of making his presence and his message and his warning and his grace known to them. Even if he knows that the people are never going to turn, that this is going to end up in desolation, he continues to give them the grace of sending Isaiah to them to preach. I don't know what's going to happen in our country, but when I look around and see culture that we live in, it seems to me that it's becoming incredibly, uh, increasingly hostile to the things of God. Our job is not to determine whether these people will turn from their sin, not to, 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 to know whether or not our culture will be redeemed and that we'll see revival or whether people are going to continue to fall away and walk away from God. Our job is to extend the grace and the love and the care of a God who forgives and a God who redeems. That our job is to carry the message of hope and the message of warning to a culture that's walking away from Him. It seems to me that all of the biggest answers to the questions of life are answered not by getting smarter or studying harder, It's a bad thing for a seminary professor to say, isn't it? That all of the questions of life are determined not by looking to my own soul, but seeing God clearly. One of my students was telling me one time about a struggle that he had earlier in life where he was just addicted to pornography. And he said, you know, I, I, I tried everything that I could to you know, try to break the habit you know, and, and, and get away from this obsession, this compulsion, to continue to get, look at these things that I knew dishonored God, that I knew were tearing at my soul. But I just couldn't seem to overcome it. And then I read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And that book showed me a picture of the God that I had known, but I had never really seen walked away from that sin not because I was working it all out in my heart, but because I saw a holy God that had called me to something bigger and something better. I, I, I think friends that all of the big questions that we have in life are not answered by looking at our own hearts, but they're answered by a clearer vision Father God,